of the early modern world. So we're talking from about 1450 to 1750. So our setting for this episode, around 1450, we've got European states just becoming more centralized. In the Americas, the Aztecs and the Incas are hitting their high point as empires. In the Middle East, the Ottomans have just conquered the old Byzantine capital of Constantinople. India, no surprise here, is in a state of disunification, as it often is. The Mongols are steadily losing ground in Russia, and China decided it didn't need the rest of the world. Now, by 1750, we've got European empires covering over much of the Americas. The Aztecs and the Incas, they're wiped out as formal states. The Ottomans have reached and moved past their high point. Russia is expanding eastward towards the Pacific. India, once again, for now, unified and China is expanding westward. So, how did that happen? So, Europe had long since been on the outside of trade networks of Afro-Eurasia, looking and trying to get in. Materially, they really had a lot less to offer compared to those manufactured goods of China we had talked about in the previous episode, or even the precious metals like gold that were found in sub-Saharan West Africa. Also, the Ottoman Empire had just been putting the squeeze on trade in the Mediterranean and the overland trade routes as they were becoming more powerful in the 15th century. But Europe was on the doorstep of the Atlantic and its mariners and its state leaders were trying to find a route that was going to take them directly into the markets of South and East Asia, which would then cut out those Muslim and Venetian middlemen who were making trade more expensive than it had to be. Christian missionaries could latch onto this because then they could travel alongside these navigators in the hopes they'd be able to convert people of distant lands to Christianity. So, I'm sure you could guess, this brings us to the voyages of Christopher Columbus, who proposed that by sailing west across the Atlantic, he could discover an alternative route to Asia. Now, by the 1480s, Portuguese navigators had made their way into the Indian Ocean, but Spain in particular was interested in Columbus's proposed alternative route. And as I'm sure you already know, Columbus was about as far off the mark as one could be, and instead unknowingly stumbled upon the Americas. So later efforts by Spanish conquistadors after Columbus, specifically Hernan Cortes and Francisco Pizarro, would help lead to the collapse of the Inca and the Aztec empires, and the establishment of a Spanish colonial empire in the Americas. Portuguese, the French, and the English would also follow suit and eventually colonize lands in the Americas. Now, part of the reason that conquistadors like Cortes and Pizarro could defeat these empires of the Americas was basically because of the germs they unknowingly brought with them. People of the Americas had not been exposed to the diseases that were common throughout Afro-Eurasia, so when they hit the Americas, they hit hard. Smallpox, influenza, malaria, measles, typhus, this list goes on and on. It's all going to work together to eliminate as much as 90% of native populations of the Americas 
in a development known as the Great Dying. The losses were so heavy that it's been proposed this contributed to a period of global cooling known as the Little Ice Age. So this was because previously cleared lands were now reforested. So this new plant life sucked the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, which thereby reduced the greenhouse gas effect that this gas would usually provide. So in the aftermath of this whole conquest, the Spanish are going to establish their own schools, their own churches, bureaucratic systems, and other institutions to bring their way of life into the Americas. Spanish settlers are going to be granted their own farms and a set of laborers in a system known as the encomienda. These laborers were able to work for the Spanish in exchange for education in the ways of Christianity and protection. But in reality, these workers are just going to be exploited for their labor and not given much in exchange. To maintain Spanish control, one thing they're going to do is implement this system known as the Costa system. That's going to set Spanish-born individuals called peninsulares at the top of the hierarchy, seconded by American-born Spaniards known as Creoles. So these two groups are going to dominate the political and the economic life of Spanish society in the Americas. And below them, you'll have mixed-race individuals, natives, and black Africans who are eventually going to be sent to the Americas to serve as enslaved laborers, especially on the sugar plantations, to serve that booming industry. Now, the colonies of British North America, they tend to look different than the Spanish, as many British settlers are going to opt to move across the Atlantic and establish permanent settlements there in a way the Spanish won't do. This is going to have a measurably different effect on that region in ways that we'll talk about later on down the road. So linking together these eastern and western hemispheres now more completely than ever, it's going to mean an exchange of plants, animals, and those previously mentioned diseases in a way that's never happened before. And this process is going to become known as the Columbian Exchange. So this meant that Europeans would now receive new foods to help boost populations like potatoes and reconfigure cuisines, looking especially at you tomatoes in Italy. And it meant the Americas would have access to new animals, like horses, that would positively transform the strength of the Comanche Empire. But most significantly, those diseases that we had mentioned before. So over in Russia. Last time we heard about Russia, it was the princes, especially those of Moscow, who were doing well for themselves. If you remember, they were the tribute collectors for the Mongols. Well, these Moscow princes now, specifically one named Ivan the Great, are going to be able to unite their people against Mongol rule and drive them out of the region in the mid-14th century. And in the century that followed, the area around Moscow began to expand out, and they began to take control of the surrounding area. Then, driven by a desire to protect themselves from invaders and to expand into areas known for their furs, Russian territory is going to stretch in the next few centuries from the Baltic in the west all the way out to the Pacific Ocean in the east. Russian political and military organization will allow them to force people of the steppes to acknowledge that Russia is superior, and they're going to have to pay tribute to the Russian state, often in the form of furs. Now, if these people converted to Christianity, they might have to pay less to the state, and they're going to generally be afforded better treatment. But those vast areas conquered by Russia that were originally settled by native peoples are going to experience a surge of Russian migration and thus a weakening of native ways of life. 
And it's this factor, as well as the power of the Russian military, that's really going to allow the authority of their state to grow so far and wide. And as Russia expanded and especially pressed on the borders of Western Europe, its leaders are going to start to wrestle with what Russia's identity is exactly. Is it a Western-looking European state, or is it uniquely Eastern, more a product of its Mongol influence? Tsar Peter the Great decided that it was going to be European, and he made great strides to westernize the culture of Russia, ordering men to chop off their beards lest he personally rip them from their faces and adopt European ways of dress, but he also wanted to modernize its military along Western lines. Empress Catherine the Great would later see herself as a monarch that reflected the views of the European Enlightenment. But Russia's unique form of absolute monarchy is going to keep unique features in the cultural, political, and social relations of that state for centuries to come, and we'll talk more about that in later episodes. Now in China, in the early 15th century, they're on the verge of changing world history, as Admiral Zheng He of the Ming Dynasty led seven expeditions throughout much of the Indian Ocean Basin. Nearly 300 ships and almost 30,000 Chinese sailors landed in modern-day Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia, India, yes, I'm going to keep going, Sri Lanka, Iran, Oman, Yemen, still going, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, and as far away as Kenya, with the purpose of bringing new peoples into the Chinese tribute system and ultimately trying to demonstrate China's power throughout the region. But these voyages end by 1433, and this is because Confucian leaders turned China away from merchant activity, they believed China produced everything that they believed they needed, and they had larger barbarian threats looming on their northern border. And by 1644, those northern threats became reality, as ethnic Manchu people came down and invaded China ending the Ming Dynasty and eventually establishing the Qing Dynasty. In part, this overthrow succeeded, believe it or not, due to famines relating to the previously mentioned Little Ice Age that we talked about during the Great Dying. Now, much like the Mongols of the Yuan Dynasty, the Manchu Qing Dynasty wanted to largely keep its culture distinct from that of China's. And they're going to try to do this by forbidding intermarriage between Manchus and Chinese, forcing Chinese men to wear their hair in braided ponytails, known as cues, and ensuring only Manchus staffed the highest government positions. But Confucianism and the civil service exam, those are going to remain essential features of Chinese society. Now, in order to secure their own borders, as opposed to expanding their economic power, the Qing are going to go about asserting their dominance over groups on the borders through military conquest. They're going to conquer parts of Central Asia, Mongolia, and Taiwan during this time. But they are going to permit the traditional cultures of these regions, and unlike Russia, they're not really going to be sending migrants to the far reaches of the empire. And these combined actions by the Russians and the Chinese in Central Asia, they're going to put an end to that period where pastoral societies were really significant to world historical developments, and they're going to kind of fall in our rearview mirror. So as China and Russia are expanding their empires, there's a new state being established in South Asia as Muslim Turkic peoples led by Babur invaded the region. Now, Babur is going to go on to become the first emperor of the rising Mughal Empire in 1526, and this state is going to retain some degree of control over the region 
through a significant part of the 18th century. So we're talking hundreds of years here. Now, much like the Delhi Sultanate from the previous time period, the Mughals are an Islamic state that ruled over a population composed of almost three-fourths Hindus. Now, they're able to keep control over this region through employing bureaucrats known as zamindars. These zamindars are given land and some tax revenue in exchange for managing government affairs. And the Mughals are going to staff this bureaucracy with only the most capable individuals who are being awarded on the basis of merit, regardless, most often than not, if they're Hindu or Muslim. And it's the Emperor Akbar who marks the high point of Mughal culture. He intermarries with Hindu women, appoints Hindus to top government positions, supports construction of new Hindu temples and other infrastructural developments. He permits religious freedom, does away with the jizya tax, which was a tax for non-Muslims that previously allowed them to practice. And he even establishes his own faith that tries to synthesize the beliefs of Hindus and Muslims, known as the Dini Allahi. Mughal culture becomes known for its incorporation of themes from both of these religious cultures, and it could perhaps be best exemplified in the mausoleum built for the wife of Emperor Jahangir, Mumtaz Mahal. That building, known as the Taj Mahal, endures to this day as a masterpiece of architecture. And finally, in the 14th century, the Ottoman Turks are hard at work eroding the borders of the once mighty Byzantine Empire. Their rulers carried significant power as the head of not only the state and the military, but also as the self-appointed ultimate leader and protector of the Islamic faith. Ottoman possession of a strong military with elite guards, a formidable navy, and cutting-edge military technology is going to be what allows them to virtually encircle the last remaining holdout of the Byzantine Empire, Constantinople, in 1453. And after laying siege to that city for several months, the Ottomans eventually break through the walls, conquer the city, and reestablish it as Istanbul. From there, the Ottomans would go on to expand along the east coast of the Mediterranean into Egypt, the Balkan Peninsula, and they would attempt to conquer the Holy Roman Empire's capital of Vienna both in 1529 and 1683, albeit unsuccessful. The political and military threat that was presented by the Ottoman Empire to parts of Europe during this era can't be overstated. Now, like other empires during this time, the Ottomans, yes, they're run by an efficient state bureaucracy. They've got a sultan that's granted absolute power and is aided by an official known as a grand vizier. You have elite warriors and officials that are developed through a system in the Ottoman Empire called the Debshirmay. This system is characterized by Ottoman officials taking young men from Christian families, converting them to Islam, and training them to serve as government officials or in the military's elite janissary guards. These officials then had this unique sense of loyalty to the state because it was nothing other than the state, not a family's wealth, not their lineage, not even merit, that gives these men the position of privilege they held. And the Ottomans, again, regarding themselves as the defenders of the Islamic faith, they elevate their Sunni branch above that of Shia Islam, often going to war against the neighboring Safavid Empire in the name of defending their beliefs, but also expanding their territory. Now, the Ottomans do tolerate the practice of Christianity and Judaism, in fact, gaining support from many of these communities due to their lower taxes compared to the Byzantines and being a haven for Jews escaping religious persecution in Spain. Under a system called the millet system, Local religious communities are able to establish their own courts as a way to manage the affairs of their own people within the larger empire. 
so there is a degree of local independence inside the wider Ottoman state. The Ottomans came to dominate the access points to Europe for trade with the rest of Asia and could charge higher prices for these in-demand goods. But, like we mentioned at the start of the episode, this control is going to be on the decline once Europe uh, begins to establish empires and trade routes across the Atlantic and Indian Oceans. So remember, by about 1750, European empires are spreading across a large part of the Americas. The Aztec and the Inca empires are no more. The Ottomans had reached and were now moving past their high point. Russia's expanding eastward to the Pacific, India's unified, China's expanding westward. Long story short, huge land-based and sea-based empires are on the rise. And this is because not only of military advancements like gunpowder weapons and professional militaries, but it's also because you have streamlined bureaucratic systems and societal structures that are in place to help keep the government and society running smoothly. So there will be more episodes that will provide more depth to the narrative of the period between 1450 and 1750, and we'll be covering the economic and cultural patterns in the next two episodes to come respectively. And if you found this helpful and want to express your thanks, please check out the PayPal link in the episode description. Until next time, take care. Everyone.